And so today, I want to turn to a wedding. It's in John chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 2, beginning verse 1. And while you're turning there, in John 2, we see Jesus attending a wedding. Jesus, as you may think, aside from this story, Jesus' whole purpose of coming to this earth is for something very, very important. As it relates to the great controversy, this is very weighty, if you will. There have been charges made, big charges, not just against the Trinity and the Godhead, but against Jesus specifically. And Jesus has come to answer those charges, to walk among humanity, to live a sinless life, and to die on Calvary for the salvation of mankind to, unto all who believe. What could be a more weighty matter than this? His time is of the essence. His ministry, we know, will only be for three and a half years, according to the prophecy. And so every moment counts. Yet Jesus did not begin his ministry by some great work before the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem, but rather he begins his ministry in a small village in which he brought joy to this special occasion, a wedding. And so let's read about it. In John chapter 2, beginning verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, lest we miss a simple part of this story, I want to draw your attention to the simple fact that Jesus is there. He chooses to be there, to be present, to accept the invitation. He takes time. Among everything on his plate, he takes time to attend this wedding. And before we move on, I want you to think about what this means for Jesus to attend, to be there, to be part. What does it mean to participate in something? Isn't it the same as endorsing something? To support it? Desire of Ages 151, it says, By attending this feast, Jesus honored marriage as a divine institution. Now, I don't have to tell you that marriage is under attack today, big time. We are inundated with them in today's world, especially this month of June, which has been coined Gay Pride Month. And the question is often asked, should I attend my gay friend's wedding? Let me read this quote again. By attending this feast, Jesus honored marriage as a divine institution. Would Jesus then attend a gay wedding? If he did, he would be honoring it as a divine institution, would he not? And friends, when God gave marriage, it was a symbol of something. Do you know what that something was? Isaiah 62 tells us, verses 4 and 5, The Lord delights in you. And it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So marriage is a symbol of many things, but this verse reminds us that this union, this symbol of Jesus bringing his bride to his father's house and the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's what marriage is a symbol of. And that symbolism is lost when we have two grooms, when we have two brides. Enough said, we'll continue with our story. So Jesus is there, he's honoring marriage as a divine institution, and something happens. You know the story well, verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, 
Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And if we were to parse that out, it's with the utmost of respect that he says that. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Verse five, his mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus, I trust you. I trust in your timing and everything else. But I'm going to say everybody to everyone around you, if he tells you to do anything, do it. Verse six, now there was a set there, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. These are good size. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him in verse 10, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. You saved the best for last. Now as a pastor, I hear all the time, Well, Jesus turned water into wine. Shouldn't I too partake of just a little wine? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? I mean, Jesus is our example. But the text says, let's let's explore this a little bit, six water pots of stone containing 20 to 30 gallons each. So that's about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. So let me ask you, if this is fermented wine, and the Greek word can either mean fresh or fermented, and the wedding was, we think, in the autumn of the year, so that would only lend itself to thinking that this would be fresh grape juice. If we were to do that, then what do we do with verses like this? Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That would be quite a contradiction, wouldn't it? How about this one? Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. And then the admonition, you do not go look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. And finally, in verse 35, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake that I may seek another drink? Wouldn't that be a contradiction of this little story? Now, Canaan was a small village, approximately 250 people at the time. And scholars estimate there probably would have been maybe 75 people at this wedding. So we've already figured there's between 120, 180 gallons of wine. That's approximately two gallons of wine each. So my question for you is, if this is an alcoholic beverage, is Jesus going to be morally and ethically responsible to those who go home drunk? Is Jesus going to be responsible for those that go home to beat their wives or who go home with another? How about the one that falls off their donkey and suffers a head injury? Yet to me, this is the clincher. How would real wine fit into the symbolism of Jesus and his pure, unblemished sacrifice on the cross? And you say, what has that got to do with it? Well, let's look at some clues or some pointers that this story has parallels to the cross. First of all, we have third day. We just read it in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day. Later on in this same chapter, verse 19, you can check it out. It says, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days or the third day, I will raise it up again. It's a parallel. It's a marker. Jesus' mother is present at both. The mother of Jesus was there, it says, in John 2, verse 1. wants to make sure we understand that fact. And then in John 19, 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Another mark, another indicator, another parallel. 
What about the hour? In this story, he says, my hour has not yet come. In John 17, 1, he says, the hour has come. How about the glory? In John 2, verse 11, which we haven't read just yet, but it says, Jesus manifests his glory. And in John 17, 1, he says, glorify your son. And then the cup. It's interesting that at the first feast, Jesus gave the cup as a symbol of his work for the salvation of men. And at the last supper, Jesus gave the cup, symbolizing his death until he comes again. All of these are markers. All of these are parallels. All of this is a symbolism that Jesus is setting up. And it only makes sense if you have pure wine. The bread that we're going to partake of today is unleavened, but that's the grape juice because both are symbolic of who Jesus is and his life. He was the unblemished lamb, right? He was perfect. He was pure. And so to me, it's only fitting that in this story, the symbolism would be lost if somehow this is some alcoholic beverage. And the water to wine, in John 2, both water and wine are present. And in Jesus' death, they pierced his side and water and blood came forth. All of these elements and clues and markers are pointing to the cross. Desire of Ages, 148 and 149, says the wine which Christ provided for the feast and that which he gave to the disciples as a symbol of his own blood was the pure juice of the grape. It was Christ who in the Old Testament gave the warning to Israel, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived by it is not wise. And he himself provided no such beverage. Isn't that more congruent? And so what's the point of this passage here in John chapter 2? Well, we get a hint of it here in verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and one manifested his glory, and two, his disciples believed in him. Those are the two reasons we're given, to manifest the glory of Jesus and to build the faith of the disciples. And I fully agree, I'm not agree, I'm not here to dispute that with anyone. It's right there in the text. But could he have not accomplished those if he just would have healed somebody? And he did later. Couldn't he have accomplished those if he just walked on water? Later he did. Couldn't he have accomplished those by just bringing a girl back to life? Later he did that too. But I find it interesting that Jesus did not begin his ministry by some great work before the Sanhedrin or Jerusalem or anything else, but rather at a household gathering in a little Galilean village. And I think tucked away in that is something else that we learn about Jesus. I like this quote, page 144 of Desire of Ages, reflecting on this story. It says, at a household gathering in a little Galilean village, his power was put forth to add to the what? Joy of a wedding feast. Thus he showed his sympathy with men and his desire to minister to what? Their happiness. Jesus says, I'm going to do something really neat for their joy, to minister to their happiness. No, 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 this is serious. Everything is serious, serious, serious. Our faces have to be serious. Jesus never smiled. Is that true? He's the author of joy, and he longs to make his children happy. And that, too, I believe, is embedded here in this story. Does Jesus care about our happiness? I believe this story tells us loud and clear he does. He cares about the big things, the little things, the seemingly insignificant things. And he said, I was just reading the other day that creation would have been fine without the birds filling the sky. He was saying this because I was talking about a a wood thrush that I heard off in the distance making this beautiful call. And he says, yeah, I was just reading about how everything would be fine without the birds. God simply created them for our enjoyment and our joy. 
I said, where is that? I need that. Beautiful. How many things in all this creation did I create just for our joy, our happiness, our pleasure? Many, many, many. He does care for our happiness. Psalm 18, verse 19. He brought me out of the broad place. He rescued me, it says, because he what? Delighted in me. He delighted in you. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save you. And then it says he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The only place in scripture where Jesus sings over you. Sounds like a father quieting his child in the middle of the night. That's Jesus rejoicing and singing over you because he loves you so much. Psalm 149, verse four, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. What gives God pleasure? His people, you, the apple of his eye. From this chapter as well, he found pleasure in scenes of innocent happiness. Jesus enjoyed himself watching these two become one. Think about the creation week. Day one, let there be light. And there was light. Day two, let there be the ferment, the sky and the water separated, and it it came to be. Day three, let dry land appear. And it's on day three that God says, it was good. Then on day four, let there be lights in the firmament, and he filled the firmament and and stars with stars and planets. And again, after day four, he says, it's good. Day five, let there be sea creatures and every winged bird. I mean, this is incredible. He's starting to fill what he has created now. And he says at the end, it's good. And on day six, let there be every living creature that walks on the earth. How many living creatures? And he creates them all. And he says, it's good, but he's not yet done. Because on day six, he also makes man. And he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the earth. And in Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You're not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. You're not an accident. He made you to be who he made you to be, male or female. And he's crazy about you, just as you are. And it's only here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that says, not just it's good. When humankind was created, he said, it's very good. It's very good. When you were made, it was very good. A Seventh-day Adventist, we might think that the Sabbath is still yet to come and that that's God's favorite somehow. And don't get me wrong, the Sabbath is beautiful, it's wonderful, it's meaningful as we rest in our Creator and our Redeemer. So I don't want in any way take away from the Sabbath, but Jesus himself told us the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You were the point of all this. And when you were created, he said, now it's very good. The point of all this has arrived. Man and woman, in our image, this is very good. And he rejoices over you with joy and with happiness because he loves you. The Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so as you're attending that wedding, And I personally have the theory that, you know, people think that it's the flowers that make the wedding. They think it's the venue that makes the wedding. It's all of these frills and everything else. And you're wrong. I'm going to share my opinion, but I am Pastor Wright. My opinion on the matter of what makes a wedding is it's not the flowers, it's not the venue, it's not the getaway car, it's not any of those things. It's the couple. That's what makes the wedding. If you have a sweet couple that love the Lord, 
that are committed to each other, that are committed to ministering and serving the Lord together, it's beautiful. I'm not even looking at the flowers. I'm not looking at the arrangements. I'm not looking at the hair. I'm looking at their faces and they're giddy. They're filled with joy and excitement as they are now joining themselves and becoming one. And this is beautiful. And what we see here in this passage, just the Lord delights in you just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, just as he's giddy over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Does he just care about our happiness? He does. He does. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord, it says in Psalm 144. I have come, they might have life and they might have it more abundantly, he tells us in John 10, verse 10. Jesus longs for the day when he will be united with his bride, the church, and that's you. Again, quoting from Desire of Ages 151, it says, Jesus saw in every soul one to whom must be given the call to his kingdom. Every soul. I must give them the call. I must beckon them to come. He reached the hearts of the people by going among them as one who desired their good. Why did Jesus mingle? Why was he social? Because in every soul, there was someone he had to call to the kingdom. And it says he sought them. And where did he seek, he seek after them? It says in the public streets, in the private houses, on the boats, in the synagogues, by the shore of the lake, and at the marriage feast. And he met them at their daily vocations and manifested an interest in their secular affairs. We have this view of Jesus that he's just so spiritual all the time. But no, he actually has an interest in secular affairs. Tell me about your job. Tell me what you do. What does this tool do? You work on this big thing. Wow, that's incredible. You're so gifted. You're so tapped. That's Jesus. And what is his point in all of this? That he might draw them to, you, to himself because he loves you, he cares for you, he wants to bring you joy and happiness to the full. That's a picture of Jesus we need to have more often. A God who loves his children and is constantly seeking after them. The quote continues, he carried his instruction to the household, bringing families in their own homes under the influence of his divine presence. And this one I love too. His strong personal sympathy helped to win hearts. Oh, I don't have time for you. I have a big mission. Have you heard of the great controversy? You want to tell me about your story? Because if you would, I'd be more than happy to hear about it. And why did he do all this? Because he loves you. He wants to minister to your happiness. And somebody out there saying, but today's communion, what does all this have to do with communion? Again, Desire of Ages 149 says, at the first feast, talking about this wedding feast, he attended with his disciples. Jesus gave them the cup that symbolized his work for their salvation. And at the last supper, he gave it again. In the institution of that sacred rite by which his death was to be shown forth till he come. What is that saying? The first feast, that's the way in Cana. The cup symbolized his work for their salvation. Okay, I got that part. The last supper, it was to set in place a service that would remember his death until he comes. And why do we want to constantly remember his death? Because it is the means. It is the only means by which we can be reunited in the wedding supper of the Lamb. That beautiful marriage between God and his church. And he is waiting and waiting and planning and waiting. He's anxiously waiting for that time. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 18. 
but it's Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I had desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This whole thing that we're going to do here in just a few moments, this is for us to remember that Jesus is waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to keep myself until we can have it again together at that special time. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Another quote, in the both of the Old and New Testament, the marriage relation is employed to represent the tender and sacred union that exists between Christ and his people. To the mind of Jesus, the gladness of the wedding festivities. Don't miss this part here. To the mind of Jesus, the gladness of the wedding festivities pointed forward to the rejoicing of that day when he shall bring home his bride to the Father's house. And the redeemed, with the Redeemer, shall sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb. With gladness, Jesus is looking forward. With rejoicing, he's looking forward. And so with every wedding that we witness, we too should look forward to a better day. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. To that wonderful and beautiful day, the day that Jesus is looking forward to with great anticipation and rejoicing when he shall bring home his bride to his father's house and the redeemed with the redeemer sit down together to the marriage supper of the lamb. And on that day, what will we say? Revelation tells us, 19 verse six and seven, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. We could say, let us be happy and filled with joy and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Jesus longs for that day, and so do I, and I hope you do too, because that will be a, a wonderful day of unspeakable joy. And soon, and I believe very soon, we'll be able to partake and eat and drink together with Jesus Christ.